Policing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers and leading crime and policing researchers. Seth Williams was a groundbreaking Philadelphia district attorney and the first black district attorney in the state of Pennsylvania. That ended when he was convicted in federal court on a charge related to the receipt of undisclosed gifts. We talk about his incarceration and the role of the district attorney. This is Reducing Crime and I'm your host, Jerry Ratcliffe. My guest, Seth Williams, had it all. He attended West Point, transferred to and graduated from Penn State University and Georgetown Law School, was a major in the Judge Advocate General's Corps of the U.S. Army, and in November 2009, with more than 75% of the vote, was elected District Attorney in Philadelphia, becoming the first black District Attorney in the state of Pennsylvania. He initiated a number of high-profile prosecutions, securing the conviction of Philadelphia abortionist Kermit Gosnell and taking on the Catholic Church, with the prosecution of three priests and a schoolteacher for sexual abuse of an altar boy and student. As I say, he had it all. He was re-elected in 2013 to a second term and was on track for a third when in 2017 the FBI announced a 23-count indictment, charging him with bribery, extortion and wire fraud in connection with tens of thousands of dollars worth of concealed bribes and undisclosed gifts while as district attorney. In a plea deal, he subsequently pleaded guilty to one charge. He was sentenced to five years, ultimately serving 34 months in federal prison. Back in June, Seth joined me for breakfast at the Broad Street Diner in South Philly, a Philadelphia institution. As you join us, we had just sat down and were discussing that it was six years to the day that Seth was incarcerated. Six years ago today, you're entering that plea. Unbelievable. I will say this about you. You've been very contrite and honest about what happened. Right. I admire that. I think a lot of people would have a tendency not to want to talk about it, and say mm-hmm. that, was just, that was in my past and stuff like that. But you've been good about it. Well, I think, I think that says something to your well, character. I appreciate it. But I think I'm not like some of the guys that were in prison with who were like just some accountant somewhere. I can't just go off and be Floyd Schoenberg, become somebody different. Yeah. yeah, they went in without a name and came out without a name. You right. went in with a name. Right. You know, there's a famous verse in Scripture that says that God comforts us. I know you're not a big believer, but God comforts us not that we may be comfortable, but that we may comfort others. My skin starts to blister whenever yeah. I walk near churches. Yeah, but yeah, I got you. <laughs> so what I learned, though, is that things happened, and I'm supposed to use that, use my professional experience and my personal journey, hopefully to help others. My greatest impact, I think, now preventing crime, reducing recidivism is what I am doing now. You know, I've been struggling. I was working at Lowe's overnight. You know, I was teaching. I enjoyed teaching criminology, but then that poofed because of the shrinking students. Yeah, the students themselves are still the same. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Student population. And so I spent all the money I had saved for taxes living, paying my rent. But I learned when I was in prison, when when I'm down to nothing, there's like no hope, it seems. The door so, opens. So something's popped up for you? A friend of mine, he calls me out of the blue. Seth, I need you, I want you to help me out, either for my firm or you can be a consultant. Long story short, he's hired me to be on his board of directors. That's a great start. Yeah, it's fantastic. And Volunteers of America, which is a nationally, uh, they have 42 affiliates across the country. They've hired me to create a vocational training program for them. Because what I really learned in prison, when I was the DA, when people said, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? You want to be the governor? You want to be the mayor? I'd say, well, you know, really, if I, if I had courage and did it all over again, I'd be more like my dad, who was a school teacher, 
He ran a rec center at night and he ran a day camp every summer for Fairmont Park. See, this is one of the things that astounds me about people like your dad, because I've heard you talk about Right, I said, he did more to prevent crime than I'll ever will. Yeah. No, but it's the community, especially in Philadelphia. I've been here 20 years now. Mm -hmm. There are so many unsung heroes that just seem to have inexhaustible amounts of energy right. to just put back into the community. I work like 12 weeks a year. Right. And right. Yeah, sometimes I'd be on campus as early as 10 o'clock in the morning and often twice a week. And I'm exhausted by the end of the day. And there are these other people holding down two full-time jobs and then going, in my spare time, I do. And I'm like, seriously? In his spare time, he did all the stuff at his church. Yeah. But my point is, they named the playground after him. It was out in Cops Creek. Cops Creek. There's yeah. a big memorial plaque. And so I never would have chosen to happen to me what's happened. But it wasn't until I was in prison and I was teaching GED. I taught spin class, and we ride the bike. So I've done show to you for two seconds, because I was like, before you went inside, don't take this the wrong way, but you had a few pounds on you. Bit of a chubby lad, I remember, because I met you a couple of times beforehand, and now you are just jacked. I need to get the bulletproof vest out, because you have brought the big guns yeah. here. Was, <laughs> You're in great I shape. Was, I was in the army, and I had to take you know PT tests, but by all the standards, I was obese. Right. But I lost 55 pounds in 2015 to raise money for a cousin that, was, that eventually died of Lou Gehrig's disease. But I put some of it back on. Uh, I was 217 when I got incarcerated. You know, now I'm about 190. You look fantastic. Thank you look in you. solid shape. Because we're the same age and I'm looking at you going, You're 56. Busted. How's it? Yeah. I'm 56. Wow. Yeah. But you look younger than me, I think. I'm preserved by alcohol. Okay, okay. I think we're ready. Yeah, we are. Great. Can I have scrambled eggs with bacon, please? Sure. Thank you. And I will have, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. I want scrambled eggs okay. with onions. Cheese in the scramble, right? in the scramble. Yeah. spinach mm -hmm. on a side of bacon, a side of scrapple, okay. no potatoes, no bread, the one of those sliced tomatoes. Yes, yes ma'am. It's good and scrambled bacon, uh, home fries, and white toast. Thank you. Okay. You yeah. got a great memory. I can That's do fun. up to five. Okay. That's fantastic. I was lost halfway through, and she's <laughs> like, boom, 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 boom. That's a skill. It's a skill. So I so learned teaching GED in prison. Being in prison, it's one thing as an academic or as the DA or public defender even to talk about it, but to actually be there when the doors close, yeah. right? So it was on June the 29th, 2017, I was there, handcuffed, solitary confinement. So tell me, day one walking in, I would be up front, I'd be absolutely fucking terrified. So June the 29th of 2017, I went to court to enter a guilty plea. Yeah, and that is six years ago today. Six years ago today. And I had been told that I could go home at lunch probably, that I'd have time to get my affairs in order, to self-surrender at some point in the future. I went to court, I entered the plea. Much to my surprise, the judge revoked my bail immediately. And I was handcuffed in court, taken underground, strip search, given an orange jumpsuit, asked crazy questions by the staff there, you know, the psychologist at the front, and then taken, handcuffed, with two correctional officers walking me through the hall as if I was uh, Lex Luthor or uh, Hannibal Lecter. I mean, you got convicted of one bribery charge. You weren't a mass murderer. One count of a violation of the Travel Act in furtherance of bribery, contrary to Pennsylvania law. Nonetheless, I found myself in solitary, and I tell people it wasn't for having been in the Army and going through reception day, 1 July 1985 at West Point. I, I, my head would have just exploded. Right. You know, I'd been to prison often as a criminal justice clinic student at Georgetown. Because you graduated Georgetown Law from D.C. Correct. And I represented indigent people. I always hated going to prison. When I was an assistant DA, we had to go up to 
the uh, detention center. They're going to do bail hearings. I hated going there then. And most people don't recognize when you're inside a prison, for the most part, all the inmates are just walking around. They think they're like always behind their cells or something. No, they're just it's like a, a free-for-all all the time. And so being in solitary and hearing just people screaming in, the, in their cells and I had to quickly just forget all about where I was living in my plush house and... This was your new life. This is my new life. This is what it's going to be. But what was that first day like? First day, I walked into my cell. They took the handcuffs off. My head was swirling and I slid against the wall, sat on the floor. I heard a guy in the cell next to me go, yo, who the hell did you piss off? And so I just could not imagine five years living in the size of a parking space, right? Yeah. About seven feet by 12 feet, concrete and just steel. Amnesty International, the United Nations, even the Obama administration, Justice Department all say that anything more than 10 days in solitary confinement is deleterious to your mental health. It in and of itself causes trauma. I can't imagine 10 days. I was there for 152 days, which pales in comparison to a lot of people. I understand that. And I tell people, the only way I got through it was faith and through God. I know your, your skin is crawling now, but Ow, it's all good. I, learned, <laughs> I learned that you know, I lost in one day, I lost my reputation, my political office, my pension, which would have been $122,000 a year every year the rest of my life, time with my daughters, my house, my law, I lost everything. And as I've told you before, when God was all I had, I learned God was all I needed. I got through every day. Is that the approach? Is that the way to look at it, which is, I can just get through today? Right. Okay, tomorrow I'm just going to get through today. And so I use today to mark also my sobriety. And it's just one day at a time. My friend, Brian Lentz, who'd been in the Army, he had done tours in Kosovo and uh, Iraq. He was my campaign manager when I first ran in 2005. Yeah, he's been involved in Philly many years. Many years. Great criminal justice reform Absolutely. and public safety mind. Yep. But the perfect balance of those things. Brian Lentz sent me this book, and you can see I got it in July of 2017. Yep. I have my name, my prison number, and you asked me how did I get through it. It was right here on page 306. Chuck Colson went to prison. What he said was, <laughs> I was in prison because I had to be there. An essential step, a price I had to pay to complete the shedding of my old life and to be free to live the new. That's nice. So let's talk for a moment about your old life because sure. I know you've talked about your background in history, but people can hear that in a lot of other podcasts. Mm -hmm. But I also want to make it current because I'm really interested in your experiences as DA. Yes. I mean, what I understand about your background, you, you were put up for adoption at birth. Yes. And you were raised in West Philadelphia by family. Was your dad somebody that you felt that you had to live up to? I think so. I think I had to live up to everyone's expectations and I had great grandparents who were phenomenal. I had, you know, my father was a school teacher. He ran the playground and rec center in our neighborhood. He ran a day camp. Everybody loved him. It was almost like being a preacher's kid. Everybody in the neighborhood knew me because of my father. But that says expectations too, doesn't it? But you, I mean, you lived up to those. You went to Penn, you went, you graduated Jordan Law. Yeah, I went, first I went to West Point and I tell people I got a medical discharge. They found out I was allergic to math and chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to Penn State, where I followed in my father's footsteps, and I was a president of the Black Caucus. I led a march of 102 miles to get our school to divest from South Africa. I was the president of the whole student government. I then went to Georgetown Law School as a public interest law scholar, and I was in the criminal justice clinic. And the professor, God rest his soul, great guy, said, Seth, as a young black man, 
You should go back to Philadelphia and be a public defender because you understand the criminal mind. Jesus, really? It meant well. It was almost like Archie <laughs> oh Bunker giving Lionel Jefferson career advice. I mean, I'm not the most tactful bloke in the world, and even I can go, really, dude? Yeah. But what I learned from that experience, representing indigent people in Superior Court in the District of Columbia and going into the prisons and meeting my clients, who almost all of them suffered from some sort of addiction that spurred their drug use and their retail thievery, Yep. okay, or whatever they were doing, it was the young assistant district attorney who had more power than Johnny Cochran, the highest paid defense attorney, a public defender, other than a police officer who's actually on the beat. The young ADA has the most discretion Huge in the system. Huge amounts of discretion right. in the system here, right. yeah. And so I learned from that, you know what, I want to be an assistant district attorney who's fighting for the victims of crime, right. but also trying to apply real-world understanding and to reform a racist, classist system from the inside. So, so that was my goal. The system we have here, right or wrong, does rely on people exercising discretion. ADAs, assistant district attorneys, exercise a lot of discretion. Cops on the street exercise a lot of discretion. The system relies on that discretion. Yes. Because without it, we'd either have anarchy on the streets. Correct. Or we would have a criminal justice system that's overflowing and clogged. So this was your first experience trying to find that balance? Yes. And I loved being an assistant district attorney. But the problem is no one's trained in any of the theories of criminology. Basically, people are just repeating what's been done. Right without knowing what the effect of what they're doing is. We're doing this because we think it's going to prevent crime or make the neighborhood safer, but does it? But we're just doing these things daily. No disrespect, but lawyers, in my experience, have not exactly been a group who, who are big into questioning what they do. They bring a certain uh, confidence to their role. Yeah, and so it was my job as an assistant DA, I was told by the chief of the municipal court unit when I first started there, September the 8th, 1992, get all cases ready, try already cases. So really, in some ways, it wasn't my goal to figure out, well, what's the best outcome for this individual? Right. What's the best outcome for this victim? My job's no. I'm making sure my witnesses are there. I'm going to put on my cases. I'll let the judge decide. I'll let somebody else figure this all out. Right. I learned so much going all around the city, putting on felony preliminary hearings, trying misdemeanor trials. My second year, I prosecuted adults that commit crimes against children. God, that's a fun job. The supermajority oh. of those are sex crimes. Right. Do you not feel like you were taking on a poison chalice? Because that is not a... It is very, very difficult. Yeah. And it be I began to numb myself. I became too friendly with a guy named Jack Daniels. Mm -hmm. I learned, you know, one out of four American women are the victims of sexual abuse before the age of 18. That's Shockingly, one out of six American men are the victims of some sort of sexual abuse before the age of 18. But nobody talks about it. What I also learned was the majority of the victims in my cases, when I would go to court, the family, they were mad at me and the victim because they knew that Uncle Skip had done it, but they wanted to handle it inside the family. I mean, we've known about this problem for so long. Our inability to deal with domestic violence, sexual abuse, things in the family. It's such a pernicious problem. I don't feel that we've made a dent in it in the, I don't know. I, next year, I'll have been involved in law enforcement in some capacity for 40 years. Wow. I don't feel like we've made a, hardly a dent in it. There are some innovative people out there, but this is just such a pernicious problem. So I am an inadvertent criminologist, and I learned by just being involved that like 82% of the offenders are people that the family knew. So all the things that we believe, oh, it's going to be some guy dressed like a clown at the malls. No, 
It's Uncle Skip, it's a grandfather, it's mom's boyfriend, yep. it's a teacher, it's a camp counselor, it's a member of the clergy. People you know. People that the family have entrusted their children with. And that gives those people opportunity. There's a whole brand of, not mainstream criminology, but criminological thinking around crime prevention that looks at opportunity, op reduction of opportunities as a major way to have crime prevention. But I don't think any lawyers ever learn any of this. I agree. And I learned most of this in 1996, I got married. We all make that mistake at sure. some point. I needed to make additional money. I wanted to remain an assistant DA. What can I do to supplement and augment my income? I began teaching the administration of justice, constitutional law, criminology at Penn State Abington. And it wasn't until I was reading the textbook that I really started learning criminological theories. Yeah, there's a lot of wicky wacky woo weird mm -hmm. criminological theories that are all a waste of time. In fact, most of them. But there are a few in there that are really useful to understand if you actually want to be involved in crime prevention. Right. You've got, you got a fan over there. That's great. I love it. <laughs> I learned this. See, as... people still know you're on this town. Oh, I appreciate it. It means a lot to me. Um, but I, I was the president of the Civic Association and Town Watch in my neighborhood. My dad and I would go out on patrol in his 1991 Ford Crown Vic. Holy shit. So somebody other than cops drives a Crown Vic? Yes. <laughs> I thought there was only police departments. It, it was those. great. <laughs> We're fine, thank you. Cheers, thank you. And so what I found was most crimes are crimes of opportunity. They are. Right? People don't plan to go steal your lawnmower today. Put the guys walking down the alley. And walking past and you left it out. And you left the garage door open. Yeah. And that guy thinks it's payday for him. I'm interested to know how you took this knowledge when you became, you got elected as the district attorney. Right. When were you elected district attorney? I was elected in November of 2009. I was sworn in in January of 2010 as the first African-American district attorney in, in the, the history of, of Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, yep. the 24th elected That's district attorney. Achievement. You know that, right? Thank you. In the city of Philadelphia. And what I learned as an assistant DA, we had a horizontal prosecution process. DAs are assigned to a courtroom. The cases are from all over the city. You prep your case the night before. You go to court. You write down what happened. The case gets put on a shelf until the night before the next time the next ADA gets it in that courtroom. Complete systemic failure. Right. But this is how we've always done it. But this is how we've always done it. And so what I learned and recognized from teaching, crime occurs geographically. There are patterns to crime based on time, temperature, season. I know you are an expert in this, but... I'm, I'm not an expert in anything, but yeah, I know, I know this much about crime. Because it's, it's opportunity driven. It's opportunity driven. And what I tell people is that if you grew up in my neighborhood, you knew the good people and the bad people. You knew the people that when, you, when you're coming home from the grocery store, uh-oh, he might try to rob me, or that person might help me. I mean, I studied this a few years ago now, but half the people who are shot in Philadelphia are shot within two blocks of their home address. And only half of 1% are responsible for 65% of the violent crime in Philadelphia. My point, though, is that when I was a kid, if your car got stolen, everybody knew who probably stole it. That's right. So should, so should we make crime prevention and criminological theories that drive crime prevention mandatory in law schools? I would think so, or definitely as part of the training for people who are involved in the criminal justice system. Everybody's in a different silo. Yeah. They don't even speak to each other. The sheriff's department, the police department, and all of them have their own ideas. So we really need to bring them together to talk. I think it's funny that we call it a criminal justice system because it really isn't a system. It's, it's a collection of individual little fiefdoms run by people who are just scrabbling to get as much resources for their little part of the piece, the puzzle, than anybody else. Correct. And what I wanted to do if I became the DA was to have geographic 
prosecution, vertical prosecution teams. How did it work? The Bureau of Justice Assistance published a 17-page document that I created that explained how we implemented community-based prosecution in Philadelphia. And for the listeners, I can make that available okay. on at reducingcrime.com slash podcast, where you can find a link to that that Great. Seth just talked about. The police department is separated into six divisions, and they each have either three or four police districts. I restructured the district attorney's office to reflect the exact way the police department was structured so that if 20% of the crimes were in the Southwest Division, which is the 18th district, the 19th, yep. the 12th, and the 16th, then we would have a identical number of assistant district attorneys assigned. What I like about it is that the ADAs can then build a relationship with the cops in those areas and build a relationship with the detectives. Because the reality is, the criminal justice system largely works on informal relationships. Right. And if we don't recognize that and design systems that actually support that, the whole thing breaks down. So when I was an assistant district attorney, I started creating after-hour parties at this place in Philly that played music, dance music from the 70s and 80s. Fantastic. And I would invite court staff, police, detectives, and my goal was if we can get people together informally to yeah. meet each other, to break down those barriers, maybe that can help us formally. Many years ago when I worked in Australia, the Australian Bureau of Criminal Intelligence once a month had a Friday afternoon networking session. I wouldn't suggest that there was beer involved, but mm -hmm. there might have been a slab or two kicking around somewhere. But it was a great chance to meet everybody in town, in Canberra, who was involved in the system. And you build relationships that way. That's how you do it. And so we created the geographic-based prosecution, mirroring the police department, cooperating with community groups that are geographically based in Philadelphia. All the neighborhoods have a civic association, a town watch yep. involving them, clergy, business leaders who are concerned along this 60th Street business corridor or wherever. Well, they do say that all politics is local, so why don't we make criminal justice local too? It should be, because the solutions are all local, because what's important to the people here in this neighborhood might be completely different than the needs of people in a different neighborhood, but no one's needs are more valuable or have less merit. I also knew we had to have great partnership. There's always going to be a tension, but a better working relationship with the police department. And I was blessed to have the opportunity to work as the DA with Police Commissioner Charles Ramsey, who I thought was a phenomenal police commissioner here in Philadelphia. And he's, also then... He's been a guest on the podcast, and he's, yeah, he's fantastic. And then also Richard Ross, who I knew since high school, and also at Penn State. Mm. He became the, the commissioner under Mayor Kenny. I remember those days, and it really did seem to be working. You were the DA, Chuck Ramsey was the police commissioner, Michael Nutter was the mayor. And those were the safest years we've had in terms of shootings. Well, I mean, we're, we were over 500 last year, over 500 the year before, but during those years... We were down to 234. We uh, had reduced... Two, it went down to 246 and 248, I believe. Yeah. We had reduced gun violence in Philadelphia to 45-year lows as a result of some very simple things. Community-based prosecution, yep. holding people accountable for the unlawful possession of firearms, which right. my successor is opposed to. Now, I'm no criminologist. I'm terrible in math. Yeah, but you can count. And 500 plus? When I was a young assistant DA, was the number one thing people had in common. They got arrested in Philadelphia because they didn't finish high school. Another thing, though, was that all the shootings, about 99% of the people who are shooting people don't have a license to carry a firearm. We need to hold people accountable when they get arrested by the police for carrying the gun illegally. Not having a GED, general education, from high school. Obviously, there's lots and lots and lots of kids in Philly that don't complete high school that 
aren't offenders in any way, shape or form, never get involved in gun violence. But the second part comes back nicely to what you were talking about, the sex offenders in the family, is opportunity. Mm -hmm. And if you are allowed to carry a firearm and the system permits you, not, not a formal permit, but just doesn't do anything to interdict and stop you, why are you not going to carry a firearm? And defense attorneys, and now the actual elected district attorney of Philadelphia believe that holding people accountable for the illegal possession of guns does nothing to promote safety. That they believe, in fact, it criminalizes poverty. Which is to say, they argue that it doesn't cost much money to get a license, that most of these people could get a license. The fact that they're not getting a license is because they can't afford the license. They also believe that, oh, well, he lives in North Philly, he has to carry a gun. So we're not going to hold them accountable for carrying a gun illegally. And I say, no, the people who are carrying guns illegally are the people who are willing to shoot and kill people. Yes. And if we're concerned about protecting the lives of these young black and brown men, then we need to hold accountable those that carry the guns illegally. So let me play devil's advocate for a moment and put yourself back in the position when you were the district attorney. So the argument that the office of our current district attorney, Larry Krasner, has put forward, I believe, is that the prosecution of young men for carrying illegal firearms is heavily skewed racially. It's, the argument is that it's racially biased, right? Mm -hmm. So what would the response be, given the fact that overwhelmingly we're talking about young black men and you're a black My, guy? One, it angers me when people say that. Right? I take it personally because I see every day three, four, two African-American men are murdered, black and brown men are murdered, yep. and four times that are shot, but because we have tremendous trauma units in Philadelphia, they're saved, where the police scoop them up and take them to the hospital, which doesn't happen in most cities. Oh, the work of people like Scott Charles and what they're Correct. doing up at town is fantastic. So to me, allowing for the status quo to remain, you are telling me basically you don't care that these young black and brown men are being killed. But the argument is that it's going to incarcerate them they, and it's just going to perpetuate mass incarceration sure. and all that kind of well, stuff. Again, it's not the severity of punishment that changes behavior. It's the certainty of accountability. So I'm not saying we need to have mass incarceration. We need to send people to jail for 20 years for carrying a gun illegally. I'm saying we need to have the police make constitutional stops, remove people from their illegally possessed weapons and hold them accountable, whatever that incremental scale is. If it's just a fine, and then probation, and then some small period of whatever. But there has to be accountability. Not having accountability, that vacuum creates the lawlessness that we have now and allows for the disproportionate number of black and brown men to be victims of gun violence and homicide. But if you're going to tell me you're stopping all these black and brown men is holding them more accountable, well, we're shooting each other. We're killing each other. It's not the KKK killing us now. My father used to say we put the KKK out of business. Oh, can you imagine the KKK in Philadelphia? They last like 10 minutes. <laughs> Bunch of clans. Right. We have to hold people accountable. Mass decarceration is just as bad for public safety as mass incarceration. The indiscriminate just releasing people from prison. So how do you find that balance? I mean, I obviously can't answer this question. I mean, I'm so white, even speed cameras don't give me a ticket. Uh -huh. I mean, I'm not the guy that can come up with a solution, but this seems like where you've got the very progressive movement saying it seems to be increasingly accepted that any kind of prosecution rate or any kind of arrest rate that doesn't reflect the overall city's demographics 
must be racial bias. Which doesn't make any sense to me. So just the fact that though black and brown men are shooting each other at astronomically high rate, if we say that their lives matter to us, we must research and then implement strategies to save their lives. You know, if we see that whatever percentage of white males are committing a specific crime, but that crime is a significant harm to public safety, then we have to come up with strategies to address it. I have no way to know this, but let's say that the crime is uh, downloading child porn. Well, if, if more accountants are downloading child porn, and then we implement a strategy to reduce that. It's going to overwhelmingly target white accountants. People saying, well, we can't do this policy. No, we have to protect children. Can I get some more Scrapple and, and some more coffee? I don't know how you can do Scrapple. It's one of the things I'm like, ah. It's everything from the pig but the oink. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you're making that sound so attractive. My, I surely and my mother would go for walks in the park and they carried sticks. They weren't carrying sticks because they were shepherds. They weren't carrying sticks because some people from the far northeast were going to come rob them. They're carrying the sticks because kids they knew from the neighborhood might try to rob, rob them while they're going for a walk. Right. But my aunt wanted them to not rob people. She wanted them to be held accountable. But she wanted them to be treated fairly. Got it. We've got to do that. Sure. But we also have to prevent people from breaking people's houses, stealing cars, right. shooting, murdering, getting guns. Now we have to treat drug addiction as a public health crisis. So I got that. So that's the next question, is that, I mean, you recognize that holding some people accountable is a part, it's not the whole thing, but it's a part of crime prevention. Correct. Okay. How do we deal with the drug crisis? Because it's getting worse too. How does the role of district attorney, can, how can that help some of these issues? The district attorney should be able to learn from and defer to people that are experts in subject matters. Because what we don't do there's an entire branch of criminology, as you know, that is about the ecology of crime. Yep. There's an entire branch that deals with the criminogenic needs of people. None of that is generally being done now. So there's a conflict there, though. You know, I've had police officers saying they feel a lot of the public health approaches do create increased safety, reduced overdoses, but also enable drug use and keep mm -hmm. people in that lifestyle. Right. It comes with the perception that what it ends up doing is it just sort of creates Pensington in Philadelphia, which is one of the largest open-air drug markets. Well, on the Eastern Seaboard, and I suspect in the United States, it's the largest open-air drug market I've ever seen. And we've had a public health approach for, got to be seven, eight plus years under the current mayor, right. when it's clearly not working. You know, I believe in the harm reduction of sharing clean hypodermic needles with people because we know the majority of those hepatitis of all of its forms, HIV, are passed through the sharing of intravenous needles. As, some, as a friend of mine said to me, it, you know, if you're dead, you ain't getting clean. Right. So I believe we can couple a program like that that's harm reduction with social service experts, nurses, practitioners, social workers, that type of staff to help people get into recovery. I'm opposed to just people being able to have whatever narcotic they want just because it's their right. No, I think that leads to public safety issues that as a society we need to protect ourselves from. So I get people angry from the far left and the far right. Oh, that's when you know you're doing something that's right. That's when I know I'm doing something right because I think the solutions are in that gray area in the middle. How the hell were you ever successful as a politician understanding that the world is full of nuance and subtlety? Well, I think part of the reason I was prosecuted clearly was as a result of making enemies. You know, I made enemies of the, the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, 
of the Catholic Church for the shielding of pedophile priests. So being Catholic yourself and being a regular churchgoer, how did that feel? I was doing the right thing. It's not the church, it's not the... Jesus isn't out there saying we need to rape children. I haven't read much of the Bible, but I just right. certainly would have noticed if I come across that part. Now, there, there are a lot of rapes in the Bible. Really? It's, oh yeah, a lot of crazy stuff happens. Old Testament? Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's not the church theory or theology. It was just people. It's no, it's no coincidence that what happened, but it gave me the opportunity to learn on the inside, living daily with people who had been drug dealers of every ilk, people who had shot and murdered people. Using that experience, how do we find that balance between holding people accountable but not generating the high incarceration levels? I mean, again, we have to address people's trauma at an early age in a healthy, community based, therapeutic way. That's not to say we don't hold them accountable when they end up shooting people, but when the kid is in third grade and he's pulling the wings off of every insect or he's hurting animals, a red flag should go off somewhere, the person should get help. But what do we do in the meantime? So what do we do if so there's a cop somewhere in Philadelphia mm -hmm. that's going to see a kid walking down the street and he's going to frisk him and he's going to find an illegal handgun. That kid's 16 years old. Right. So we should hold him accountable. A charge should be brought against him in juvenile court where a judge then figures out why is he out at 2 a.m.? Why does he have the gun? Who is he associating with? What can be done now as an intervention to help get this person back on the right track? And what I learned on the inside is that wasn't being done. And that the system in many ways had failed the people that I was in prison with. You just become a number and churn through the system. That's it. So the people that you found inside, you know, and you've, we've talked in the past, do you still believe every single one of them was rehabilitable? Well, did I just make up a word? I think I just did, didn't I? I think, I think people <laughs> I just have. Think I made up a word. I think it's only a very, 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 very small percentage. And I'll leave it to, I'll defer to you as a criminologist and people that work with not, you. Not my area, but yeah. Right. As to know the number of people that are just purely sociopaths. They're very, all psychopaths. Very, very low. Yeah. Or a psychopath, whatever yeah, yeah. the term is. Yeah. One of the first things I did every year at Penn State was show my students a movie with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd called Trading Places. It is one of the great films. And in it, it discusses many causation theories of crime. It's a good example. It's really good. Yeah. Right. And, and most people who are in prison, if they do have a transformation, it's only because they wanted it. They did it. It's not because the institution helped lead them to it. It was by luck or by divine intervention. And so I created my own company because nobody would hire me. Second Chance Strategies is to implement what I learned as a DA and as a GED instructor to help people not only get jobs but to reduce recidivism to help them learn how to keep jobs. So this is and conflict resolution is one of the greatest things. So this Learning is how to say I'm sorry. So this is one of the things I find fascinating about this and maybe I spend too much time in academia now. Everybody's all about re-entry and second chances and we talk about it and everybody's virtue signals in all the right ways. They don't mean it at all. Uh, uh, yeah, it's bullshit, right? It's because bullshit. you've got a background. You were a jag in the army. You were the district attorney, for Christ's sake. You were- A criminal uh, defense attorney. Criminal defense. You've been incarcerated. You have all this experience. And I know you don't mind me, Jen, but I know you, it, since coming back out, you've struggled to find work, which I just find incomprehensible. Even organizations that are about criminal justice reform, they don't want to hire me because I was a prosecutor. Public safety organizations don't want to hire me because I went to prison. Right. They all treat me like I'm radioactive. I've learned 
that almost nothing is done by the system. Once the person gets arrested, we should be able to figure out, well, this person needs this and that. You know, and what's necessary for you might not be the same as necessary for me, even if we commit the same crime. But none of that is to say we don't hold people accountable. We don't just give people a free pass. It doesn't help that there's a more fractious relationship between the prosecutor's office now and the mm -hmm. police department and the mayor's office. Well, the mayor's yeah. non-existent. So did you, how do you think things will change? We've got a new mayor likely coming. It's highly likely to be Sherelle Parker. Do you know Sherelle Parker? I do. I know her very well. She understands the actual definition of Terry versus Ohio and what a constitutional Terry stop is based on reasonable, articulable suspicion. And the, I should say at this point that almost like a consent decree in Philadelphia, about 2015, the, what's called the Bailey Agreement locally came in. Some estimates said that only about 30% of stops by the police were constitutional. The most recent figure I heard is it's north of 90% now. The term so stop and frisk been manipulated by people to mean cops just jumping out of a car and stopping some random person. No, that, that's bad. I'm not condoning that type of behavior, but I'm, I'm condoning a constitutional stop as articulated and opined by the United States Supreme Court um, when they wrote the opinion of Terry versus Ohio. Mayor Parker, if she wins in November and is sworn in in January, like my Aunt Shirley, she wants people to be held accountable, but fairly, that's all we want. We don't want to stack people up in prison uh, for long periods of time, if not necessary. We want to prevent crime. Yep. So we do all we, have, we can to redesign the environment, to reduce the opportunity for crime. But then when people do commit, hold them accountable. Yeah. Get them the help that they need so they don't become repeat offenders. That's what we have to do. I just love the fact that you just tied in the likely future mayor of the city of Philadelphia to you, Aunt Shirley. There you go, because <laughs> my Aunt Shirley was a type of person that Ms. Parker really identified with. Right. And those are the people that voted for her. Those are the people in Philadelphia who they deserve better policing and they want better policing, but they don't want less policing. Correct. They want the police to arrest the right people. And I think a lot of the time what's misunderstood is when they talk about wanting more policing because they don't really understand the system, they also means they want kids who are on the wrong track to be held accountable. Correct. The majority of 911 calls in Philadelphia come from the poorest neighborhoods. Yes, they do. Where the people want help. Now, they don't want the police officer to show up and then beat to death their kid because he's autistic, but they want somebody to come and end the violence that's occurring in the moment. Yeah. In real time. And all the day-to-day -day bullshit stuff that just grinds people down as well. Right. Graffiti, having your car stolen, all those things. So in your spare time, how did you get into spending your weekends marrying people? I think that's fantastic. I have a friend who owns a wedding chapel. And she contacted me because she needed help at her chapel. And she asked me if I was an ordained priest because she knows how I've had a significant spiritual journey. So I'm not ordained, but so I go online and in about 15 minutes, anybody can go online and be ordained to do weddings. This is so quintessentially American. I'm gonna <laughs> right? And so I love officiating weddings. I did one yesterday. On an average Saturday, I'll officiate five to seven weddings. Where my old job was about murder and mayhem, this new life, and specifically officiating weddings, is about hope. It's about love and joy, excitement. And so I love officiating weddings. Well, I, I've got to tell you, I, um, 
certainly on the wedding side of things. I love following you on Twitter because every now and again, amongst all the murder and mayhem that we're experiencing, you just post these absolutely lovely pictures of people <laughs> at their happiest moment. Exactly. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. Right? And, you know, so I tweet every morning a verse of the day, some, something that's inspiring me that day. My phone blocks that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I then report, I talk about Philadelphia sports, the, the Sixers and the, the Eagles, and then, and and then these, you post these, these wedding pictures. It's fantastic. <laughs> Seth, it's been great fun. Thanks. It's been great talking to you, Jerry. I always love talking to you about criminal justice. Likewise, mate. Likewise. Cheers. That was episode 63 of Reducing Crime, recorded in South Philadelphia in June 2023. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime and my personal random ramblings occur at Jerry underscore Ratcliffe. Want to use this episode for a class you teach? DM me for transcripts and spreadsheets of multiple choice questions for every episode. And of course, subscribe to Reducing Crime wherever you found this. That would make me happy and we need more joy in the world. Like this podcast, subscribing costs nothing. Be safe and best of luck.